Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I spent a couple years following the caravan, the art fairs that went from one city to another, where you did see a lot of conspicuous consumption, not just in the prices of the paintings, which were conspicuously outrageous, but in the lifestyle and the way these people socialize with each other. It was a club, you know, and, and all you needed to be a member of the club was money. That's Michael Schneerson, who began his writing career as a sports reporter on a weekly called The Santa Fe Reporter, after graduating from Dartmouth in 1976. He subsequently returned to his native New York as a staff writer at Time magazine. Two years later, he was hired as the editor of Avenue magazine, and in 1986 was hired by Vanity Fair's new editor-in-chief at the time, Tina Brown. Over the next three decades, he's written over 75 articles on a wide variety of subjects, from AIDS in the arts to society murders to Hollywood celebrities, and helped Brown's husband, Harry Evans, start Condé Nast Traveler. Along with writing for Vanity Fair, he's published eight nonfiction books. Among these is My Song, Harry Belafonte's memoir, published by Knopf in 2011, and The Killers Within, The Deadly Rise of Drug-Resistant Bacteria, co-authored with Mark J. Plotkin and published by Back Bay Books in 2003. Most recently, Michael's written about contemporary art dealers in Boom, as in Art Boom, published in 2019 by Hachette Little Brown, and Bugsy Siegel, the Jewish gangster whose short biography has just been published by Michael for Yale University Press's Jewish Live series. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Max. A delight to be here. I wanted to start by admitting that we've known each other since we were in short pants, I think. Is that fair to yes, say? Yes, that's. Uh, I guess we shouldn't keep that a secret, Max. I actually have a clear, very clear memory of you uh, scuttling down the corridors of collegiate school with a backpack over your shoulder. I suppose I had one, too. Those were different times, and they were simpler times, because as we navigate the pandemic, I notice, as you do, that parts of the U.S. are getting control of it. And there's a chance that a more normal life is a few months away. But I've been recently wondering about a book you did a while back in 2003 called The Killers Within, which was about drug-resistant bacteria. I know you're not Dr. Fauci, but I, from your research, do you think we're facing yet more of these health crises in the immediate future? Sadly, in a word, yes. That book I published back in, I don't know, 2002 or three. And I was fascinated by stories I was reading about how certain of these very dangerous bacteria like methicillin-resistant staph aureus and vancomycin were spreading through hospitals. The most dangerous place to be was in a hospital susceptible to these bugs. Flash forward 20-some years, I think it's a miracle that they haven't broken through more hospitals and out into the community. We won't dwell on this, but the one that, that I find most alarming is multidrug-resistant tuberculosis because that passes between people in the air. They can be two or three feet apart, and there's almost no antibiotic that works on the worst strains of it. That's uh, worrisome. So <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know what to tell you uh, in the way of comfort, but maybe that uh, it could be worse. Pre-pandemic, we were accustomed to seeing visitors to New York from Asia who wore masks routinely. And right. we always would look at them and say, well, that's interesting and curious. They must be nervous about something. And then we went about our business. Are we going to actually give up masks when herd immunity is in place or are we, should we not? Should that be a normative approach to modern life that we just freaking wear masks when we're out and about? Yes, I, I think it is. It's sad to say, but I think 
for the foreseeable future, we will be wearing masks if okay. we're responsible. Speaking of masks, Michael, the art world is a world of masks, of mirrors, of smoke. And you Max, wrote an a amazing... brilliant transition. <laughs> I just came up with that. And you wrote this book called Boom, which had a real reclame. And I wanted to ask you about that in terms of another conspicuous thing, which is consumption. And in light of the pandemic, in light of George Floyd's murder and the attendant social awakening, is that kind of conspicuous consumption that you documented as easily tolerated today as it was a year ago? Interesting question. I spent a couple of years following the caravan, the art fairs that went from one city to another, where you did see a lot of conspicuous consumption, not just in the prices of the paintings, which were conspicuously outrageous, but in the lifestyle and the way these people socialize with each other. It was a club, you know, and, and all you needed to be a member of the club was money. So everyone was just thrilled to be as conspicuous as possible. A lot has happened since then, and that was like 2018 and 19 that I was reporting mm -hmm. and then publishing that book. Overnight, literally overnight, all uh, art galleries and art fairs just stopped. You know, So obviously it's been a year since then, a little over, and I find it rather miraculous that the art market is there at all. You know, One reason it is is because they got smart technologically, the galleries did, and they posted these online screens of art and even Larry Gagosian, the brilliant and arrogant dealer who didn't tend to tell you what his artworks cost. Mm -hmm. You just had to be willing to pay it. Even he became humble enough to, in effect, advertise the art that he was selling and more to the point to put a price on it because Gagosian was renowned for not doing that. He would sort of size you up and depending on the moment, he would charge this or that for the painting. All that has changed. The art market is far more humble. But there are signs of life. My wife and I were down in Palm Beach last month, and there's a fascinating pop-up gathering, mm. if you will, yeah. of three or four of the top galleries, Gagosian, Aquavella, and Pace, and I think one other. These were the mega galleries, as they were called. Mm. And here they are down in Palm Beach, right next to the San Ambrose in Palm Beach, selling art. I had lunch with Bill Aquavella while I was there, and he was quite euphoric. He said, you know, it's amazing. Given that people are buying houses in a frenzy all over the country in swank areas, and given that Palm Beach is no different, it's perhaps no surprise that these dealers are doing very well because those people who bought those houses need art to put up on the walls. As the market slowly returns, one terrific aspect, one gratifying aspect is more pie for black artists, artists of color, Asian artists. A huge upswelling or upwelling of interest mm -hmm. in their yeah. work. And the prices. I mean, you know, Kerry James Marshall, remember, even before the pandemic began, he sold a uh, painting to P. Diddy for $21 million. Uh, this right. is a, a wonderful artist, but his previous price level had been more like a million. Have you been following NFTs? I followed them a little bit, and I my reaction is, God, I'm glad the book was out and done by the time NFTs came came along, because I, I find it baffling, of course, as many of us do. The whole idea that this little digital thing could acquire such value is mind-boggling to me. I tend to see it as a fad. 
We'll check uh, back with you in five years on that, Mike. We'll find out if yeah. we're wrong. <laughs> maybe it will be the art market by then. Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. We, maybe we won't be buying paintings at all. We'll just be buying NFTs. I don't know. I, I see it as, um, as a vogue. Okay. Well, speaking of vogue, television has been a vogue for about, I don't know what, 70 years. And you have sold television rights to your book, Boom. So what was that process like and what are you expecting may happen? Happy to say I've got two art-related properties that are seem to be on their way to the screen. That's one of them. The Boom book, the full name, by the way, is Boom, Mad Money, Mega Dealers, and the Rise of Contemporary Art. A very nice fellow who had something to do with producing Game of Thrones has not only optioned Boom as a, I guess, a sort of story or series, but he's hired this writer named James Fry to be the writer. And you being the literary publishing art type you are may have a dim memory that this was a guy who got a little tangled up in plagiarism. But he seems to have rehabilitated himself and is quite sought after as a TV writer or series writer, if you will. So he's doing that. We'll see where it goes. I have no idea what their take is on it, because as you know, it's like Hemingway said, right? You know, you you don't worry about what they're doing and they don't tell you what you're doing. You just uh, deposit the check in the bank and go off happy. Uh, And I feel the same way. The other one that I'm actually much more involved in and in a way interested in is a podcast that I'm doing with Alec Baldwin about the whole Nerdler Gallery scandal in a quick sentence. Back in 2012 or so, there was this scandal that erupted in the art world when it turned out that a uh, venerable gallery, as it's always referred to, the Nerdler, some 160 years old, that its director, Ann Friedman, had been selling fake paintings for like 20 years, paintings by the mid-20th century greats, Pollock, de Kooning, Rothko, etc. Alec became very interested in the scandal of it, in part because, in large part, because he had been the victim of an art forgery situation himself with the dealer Mary Boone. And I won't take us down the lane of that story, but it's quite interesting. And he was quite indignant and he ended up getting a check for a million dollars from her uh, or Mm -hmm. or something to that effect. So he had the idea, gee, why not a podcast, a story that starts with my situation and then sort of opens up into this larger story of the Dirtler, which is really the greatest art forgery in decades. So he asked me to help because I had written a story of the whole thing for Vanity Fair and because I'd written Boom. So in Hollywood, that makes you an expert. And it was very kind of him to to hire me on. So we've actually been working very hard on that. That's cool. And then there was this recent Netflix documentary called Made You Look a True Story oh, About yes. Fake Art. And you're in <laughs> Made that Made You Look is also about the Nerdler Gallery. And I was, as they say, a talking head on it. I had been asked to do that maybe three years ago, completely forgotten that I had done it by the time it came out. And it was a little embarrassing to have to say to Alec, oh, by the way, you know, that project that you and I are involved with, I was an expert on the other one that right. just came out. I mean, that was a uh, a documentary, not a podcast. But nevertheless, he was unbothered by that. And uh, we think we have a a really good story. Speaking of stories, sir, you wrote, what, six years ago, an unauthorized biography of a gentleman named Andrew Cuomo. And I'm guessing you have some views about the governor's current travails. Is that fair (laughs) to say? Uh, Yes, I guess I do. That was a strange book for me, I, I guess I took a gamble back in 2013 or so that this man who had just had a great year as governor in New York State, done a number of things, including passing same-sex marriage through the legislature, 
that he was going to run for president and might even win. And of course, once you accepted that possibility, what a great family story it was with Mario, his father, the governor, and the whole Italian heritage, and Andrew being married to Carrie Kennedy, one of the Bobby Kennedy kids. I, anyway, there was a lot to do. I had great fun doing the book. And unfortunately, at almost exactly the time the book came out in 2015, it became apparent that Andrew was not running for president. There was no chance because Hillary was, you know, lined up and blocking his way. So I thought of the whole book as a kind of folly and dismissed it until, you know, this last year when he resurfaced in a whole new way. I had no interest in writing a sequel. I felt I'd lived with uh, Andrew Cuomo in my head quite long enough. But certainly I have followed it and I've tried to give commentary where I can. I mean, the most obvious thing it seems to be uh, to say is that this is Shakespearean. This is a guy who was skilled, but also arrogant, a sort of dark side to this guy that seemed to come from his family and someone who needed people around him to speak honestly and keep him from going off the guardrails. Eventually, there just wasn't someone. Even, I mean, even, even a, a strong-willed woman in his life, I have no doubt that Sandra Lee provided that. She came along just as my book was coming out. But, you know, Sandra Lee is gone, and, and so are other advisors who curb his worst instincts. And now it's only a question of whether he's going to be impeached or not. I think he might ride it out, you know, because people may say the sheer challenge of trying to unseat this man, why not just let him serve the rest of his term? He had once assumed that he could run for a fourth term as governor, and in so doing, surpass his father. It was kind of a family Mm-hmm. Uh, contest, uh, who could serve the most terms as governor. But that's not going to happen now. I mean, Mario actually uh, lost his race for a fourth term. And Andrew, there's no way uh, Andrew's right. going to run for a fourth term. Right. He'll, he'll be lucky to get away without some serious censure. May I ask you about a different dynasty, which is one that's holed up in Florida, not far from where you were. Do you foresee writing something about that world? No, I I uh, think it's unfortunate that uh, <laughs> I have to share the same uh, air with him down there. I don't want to write about Trump. I don't want to think about him. I'm thrilled that in the aftermath of this horrible situation that nearly cost us our democracy, that at least now the talk, the 24-hour you know news cycles are are subsiding and and. Mm-hmm among many other things that uh, Biden has done, he simply lowered the temperature so that people can start talking about policies again instead of just ranting at each other. And I I think any kind of book or magazine story that brings any more attention to Trump really ought to be put aside. (laughs) And some of the extra atmosphere that you're enjoying allowed you to write a book even as the Trump world was coming to an end about Bugsy Siegel. And I learned a lot about the origins of Las Vegas from it. And I wonder whether you were able to tease everything out you hoped to in this account, or did you leave any questions unanswered in your mind? Well, I love doing the Bugsy book. It's a deliberately short biography because it was written for a series called Jewish Lives, which is actually under the aegis of Yale University Press. And, um, they have published about 50 of these books. You know, they all kind of look the same, very handsome design. And I should 
probably say that uh, it's no secret that the financier Leon Black uh, essentially underwrote this series. Uh, Leon is struggling with the legacy of Jeffrey Epstein, as we know. But uh, he's done a lot of good things, and one of them was uh, underwriting this series. But the fact is, not one of those 50 books uh, was about anyone who was less than saintly and legendary in the best sense. I think it was um, Eileen Smith, the editor of the series, who said, well, maybe it's time for a gangster. After all, you know, gangsters, uh, Jewish gangsters are are part of the whole Jewish American experience that we are mm-hmm. writing about in this series. Why not a, a gangster? And then the question was, which one? And they had chosen Bugsy Siegel by the time I got involved with the project. And I must say, in retrospect, it was a brilliant choice. Meyer Lansky, Bugsy's best friend and partner through decades, is well enough known, or just perhaps by the chance of who published what, there's quite a number of books on uh, Lansky. The shelf is full. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the case with Bugsy. There were a couple biographies of, of him. Uh, one of them going way back to 1965, but the brilliance of that it was it was so helpful to me. It's by a guy named Dean Jennings, a real sort of shoe leather tabloid reporter guy, who you know couldn't be bothered with end notes or other such niceties of an academically published book. He just told great stories, and he yeah. got to some of these people before they died, like the actor George Raft who mm-hmm. was a um, very close friend of Bugsy's out in, in uh, Hollywood, and, and Virginia Hill's younger brother, Virginia Hill being the, the, uh, the gun mall who became uh, Bugsy's uh, inamorata toward the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, it turned out to be that there was just enough stuff to work with and not too much, so I was able to certainly put together this package in a way that I don't think anyone's read it, Another key element was all the FBI files, which had been released, I don't know, sometime in the last few years. I got very excited about those, thought I would break lots of new ground with them. I did break some. There are some funny little comments that, you know, the FBI would be taping Bugsy as he was in bed with Virginia, and they would be having comments or arguments. And, you know, the FBI would be there with their buzz cuts recording this whole thing. But in fact, they had redacted an awful lot for no reason at all, just because they were, you know, FBI guys. Um, Wasn't it true also that in your account, Bugsy knew he was being at a certain point recorded, so he was more circumspect in his Yes, it's probably true that Bugsy knew he was being recorded because, uh, after all, they were all up in Las Vegas at that time, 1945, 1946, uh, with Bugsy overseeing the construction of the Flamingo, this first great kind of international class casino hotel. And, uh, you know, the FBI guys just stood out like sore thumbs. I mean, everyone knew they were in town recording Bugsy. So yes, Bugsy uh, was careful. He was discreet. At one point, Virginia bought him a a state-of-the-art stereo, (laughs) which they could put in their bedroom and turn up really loud. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in order to uh, make love, one presumes, and and to uh, exchange news of the day. At any rate, the FBI files were of some help. And then, you know, I'll tell you this, in the 30s and the 40s, you know, there were so many newspapers in New York and LA. It was quite marvelous. There were morning editions, there were evening editions. There were, in New York at one point, six or eight newspapers. And as Bugsy became notorious in the 1930s, uh, he made news, and those reporters worked hard, and so there was a lot of great color. 
So between the FBI files and the, and the newspapers and the couple of biographies that were out there, I was able to stitch together a story that I felt was really fun and gave you a sense of this man, to some extent, what made him tick, why he had the incendiary temper that gave him his name, Bugsy, how it was that this man could charm you one minute and shoot you the next. Clearly, he was pathological, but how? So I had a lot of fun sort of speculating, really, on, I mean, who can know exactly what was going on in the man's head, but certainly some of the more dramatic and horrifying moves he made and murders he participated in gave you a sense of who he was. There was a a certain tragedy about all these Jewish gangsters, whether it was uh, Meyer Lansky or um, Bugsy or Arnold the Brain Rothstein, who early on uh, was kind of like the great Gatsby upon whom Fitzgerald based his book. People like this felt they had to become gangsters because there was no other way for them to rise in society up from the Lower East Side. And they were probably right. I mean, obviously, some managed, some like Eddie Cantor, or the Marx Brothers, or you know Irving Berlin, people who had great talent artistically, they rose uh, mm-hmm. through vaudeville. But a lot of people rose uh, by dint of hard work. Your sympathy for the Jewish gangsters only goes so far. Nevertheless, I sympathized with Bugsy's situation, with the fact that he basically had to make do on his own from the age of six or seven, kid of the streets. And then I think at the end, there's uh, a sense of sympathy one has that Bugsy had nearly achieved the dream of the Jewish gangsters, which was to go legit Mm -hmm. and to um, get out of crime and to pass along to their children the, the money that would enable them to become you know, successful members of society. He was nearly there because the Flamingo, after a very rocky opening in December 1946, and after his fellow gangsters had become thoroughly fed up with him and were not only looking for their investment money back, but seriously considering killing him. After all that, things had miraculously begun to turn around. The Flamingo in the winter and spring of 1947 was finally in the black People were coming and filling the place. And so when Bugsy went back one night, flew down from Vegas to Los Angeles to stay in his girlfriend, Virginia Hill's house in Beverly Hills, she having gone off to Paris a bit mysteriously, he sat back against the bay window, not even taking the concern that that might be dangerous. And he read the evening papers that night on June 20th, 1947. And then suddenly shots rang out and someone fired nine of them into Bugsy, who was only a few feet away, someone who was outside the house looking in. And that was it for Bugsy. Um, No going legit in the end. No uh, American dream come true. We've talked about your books, but we haven't talked about Vanity Fair that much. And I'm wondering, in terms of your approach to a story, you must find at times that publicists are blocking your way. What's it like to get through that thicket? Is there a moment in time when you're working on a story where you suddenly feel trusted? um, There was certainly a time when I wrote a lot of cover stories for Vanity Fair on celebrities, and maybe that's what you're Mm -hmm. referring to. And um, I didn't have anything to do with negotiating those cover choices. I just came in when the negotiating had been done between the magazine and the publicist. I can tell you that as the years went on from the 90s on into the 00s, 
and Vanity Fair became the powerful, predominant sort of entertainment magazine that it did, the publicists got more and more domineering or dictatorial, if you will, because they had the stars and the magazine had to put a star on the cover. It just simply couldn't avoid that. And so the PR people would dictate to the magazine what they could do with their stories and what they would dictate, the, you know, who would take the photograph, would it be Annie Leibovitz, would it be someone else? They would dictate what subjects could not be discussed and which could. I got particularly annoyed when I remember doing a story on Sandra Bullock, who's actually a very good humored and fun woman. She had just done that movie Blindside. And she and I had a couple hours of conversation. It was really a kick. And then I went off thinking, you know, this story is really good, but it could be a little better if I did a little reporting for it. (laughs) And so I made a few calls and one, you know, found a couple childhood friends, this sort of thing. Well, that came back um, as if I had touched a third rail. The publicist had complained that I was nosy (laughs) Mm -hmm. as a journalist and that I was invading her privacy, uh, Sandra Bullock's privacy, et cetera. And I think, come to think of it, that was maybe the last cover story I was asked to do because I had broken a rule. Fortunately, it doesn't speak so well for uh, for the industry, but that was the reality. One last question, which is an obvious one. You've written all of these accounts and stories about modern life and the protagonists. Is there something you've not yet written that you'd be willing to tell us you're interested in tackling? Well, I I don't have a simple answer for you. In a way, I regret that I made the career choices I did. The books I wrote have nothing to do with each other. And I think that a smart narrative nonfiction journalist finds subjects that sort of build on his last book, which, of course, then hopefully builds an audience. I kind of went zigzagging. I'm going to try not to do that anymore, which is to say I'm going to try to find a subject in the art world that's worthy of a book. It's very hard, though, because most books about the art world, the subject starts to seem too small. On the other hand, the big subjects have all been done. I would have loved to have written the biography of Francis Bacon, but it has just been written after a labor of 10 years by this wonderful husband-wife team, Annalyn Swan and her husband, Mark. And the book is 700 pages, and it's Mm -hmm. wonderful, and I'm starting to read it. But, you know, there aren't many of those left. There was a huge uh, doorstop of a biography on Andy Warhol a year or two ago. It was pretty authoritative, but even that didn't seem as fresh as one would like. So in short, Max, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be coming around asking you for a good idea in the art world, and maybe we'll uh, you know, go that route together. Great. And our listeners can revisit hearing from Michael Schneerson at our next episode of his extraordinary writing career. Michael, thanks for making time today to be on Artscoping. It's my pleasure, Max. I'm thrilled you've got this podcast underway, and I'd love to come back. Thanks so much, Michael. We've been speaking today with Michael Schneerson, contributing editor at Vanity Fair and the author of eight books on a range of nonfiction subjects. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.